0: Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Greg. How you doing? I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron and I'm doing just fine, That's Cherry. That's good. Coming up this hour, we talk to the owner of Harriet's Bookshop in Philadelphia. She is joining us from the Philadelphia of mm-hmm. Europe, Paris, France, <laughs>
1: to talk about like
2: that.
0: Paris, France to talk about her new Josephine Baker themed
2: store. Also, author Valerie Friedland says some of the words that we have deemed fillers like like um bro bruh all those words Mm -hmm. right they're actually part of making us better communicators we'll hear from her about the likes and the ums in our everyday
0: language this is a topic that inspires quite a bit of passion it does so you can email us (laughs) studio2 at whyy.org to join the conversation do you try to watch your filler words are they a pet peeve chime in and before we get to all of that, we're going to check in on the Pennsylvania school funding case. But first, mm-hmm. Cherry, I have to mention that you and I both got an email. We did. On Friday. You deleted yours, right? I deleted it <laughs> just because, you know, I didn't want to click any links. Or <laughs> I, I thought I thought it was a scam. Uh huh. And I, I showed it to our producers, this email that we both got. And we all agreed it was a scam because yeah. it, it was very vague and a little bit generic. Mm-hmm. And we thought, no way could this be possible. But indeed... The email was real. It was from the good folks, the very good folks at Philadelphia Magazine. We, we do love them now. <laughs> um, they were naming us Best Radio Show. Yeah, Studio their, 2. Studio 2, the best radio show in their annual Best of Philly list, which is, I think a lot of our Listeners know about Best of Philly. It's an annual tradition going back decades and decades in this market. And we were just um, stunned. We were that stunned to find out. And you know, you hear Avi. He's the very laid
2: back voice of reason. Very, but he was, he's the chill bra (laughs) of the two, right? Hype. Like was, I've never seen Avi so excited. Yeah. And I was excited too. I've never been on one of these lists. Yeah. And by the way, we're on a, a list with like folks like Cheryl Lee Ralph and State Senator Vincent Hughes, as well as Jalen Hurts. <laughs> That's what
0: you were excited about. <laughs> I was
2: excited about that. So that that felt pretty good. Thanks was, so much. It for was
0: that. it was it was a wonderful honor. Um and we just want to thank the top of the show, our producers. Amen. Uh Debbie Paige, Andreas. We want to thank uh, Joe and Isabella who helped Look create the Give show. And we want, and we want, <laughs> Mike said they're going to play me off soon. Um, and we really want to thank our engineers too Charlie, Al, Diana, Adam, Tina, everyone who helped us put the show together. We've only been on the air for like four yeah. months. To get this honor was absolutely uh, pretty dope, humbling, and yeah, crazy. Dope. And it's all downhill from here, Joe. Yeah. Because <laughs> we got to dig into the news. So let's talk about New Jersey. Governor Phil Murphy signed legislation yesterday. Um, that will establish a commission to study the effects of social media usage, both in and out of school on adolescents. This is a topic we've talked about before in yeah. the award winning uh, studio, too. And <laughs> sorry, I'm going I'm to drop it, folks. I, I, I promise. Um, and uh, so this is a commission that will study the topic uh, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Usually commissions lead to laws, which sometimes lead to lawsuits. Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of the, the progression uh, but it's a topic we both have our eyes on.
2: For sure. 19 members would be part of this commission, including the Commissioner of Education, four public members appointed by legislative leaders, and 14 members appointed by the governor. By the way, this is an extension of the federal and state focus on teens, social media, and, and mental health. Yep. We had a whole show with the Bucks County lawsuit filed against social media companies. Look what I got so- here. This
0: is the, uh, you can hear it. It's the Wall Street Journal from mm-hmm. yesterday, Big Front Page Street about plaintiff's lawyers going around the country recruiting yeah. school boards to sue social media companies. So there's many angles yes. to this. There's state laws and state legislators. There are plaintiff's lawyers. There are the social media companies. Yeah. There's the federal government. We will see... When it all sifts out where the action really yeah. happens. But New Jersey could be one of those places. could be
2: one of those places. And I have to say, it's all about protecting kids because people seeing like some of the negative effects play out at home. And speaking of protecting children, yeah. um, a case just broke. The 1975 murder of a Delaware County girl has been solved. Uh, I don't know if you remember this cold case, but Gretchen Harrington was eight years old when she went missing. Almost 45 years ago, uh, in August of 1948, years ago, August of 1975, she went to Bible camp. She never returned. Two months later, after she disappeared in October of 75, a jogger discovered her body in a wooded area of Ridley Creek State Park. And um, there was a recent break in January of this year. Investigators interviewed someone who was a friend to the daughter of the accused. They got some vital information Mm -hmm. and were able to identify now 83-year-old Reverend David Zanstra um, who is being charged with first-degree murder. The reason why this story stuck out to me, and I will not go into the facts of this case, but what stood out to me is the relentlessness of the investigators. They did not give up. And 48 years later, this family gets to close the door and the... Accused person who did this heinous crime could likely come to justice. Um, This person has confessed. So, you know, it's very likely, you know, there will be uh, some closure here. But the the relentlessness, I mean, kudos to the investigators who never gave up 48 years, almost to the day after her disappearance.
0: I'll just add kudos to the investigators. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tip of the hat.
2: Yeah, and I have to say we mentioned the the boy in the box that case that that victim was identified in uh, November of 2022. We have so many cases that are cold cases that are being solved today thanks to technology and the relentlessness of
0: those on the front lines. Absolutely. Um I will transition now to something I've been thinking about recently, which is skyscrapers. Okay. So we we, we got a lot of them here in Philadelphia. We do. And all the major cities up yeah. and down the East Coast. Um You know, for a long time, these were like temples of office work. Mm -hmm. Thousands of office workers filling these huge skyscrapers. Then this pandemic happened. Yeah. Heard about that. And uh, a lot of them are struggling now with... Everybody moved out. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of folks are not working in the office anymore. And companies are looking at new alternatives. They're downsizing. And so the question, right, is what will happen with all of these old office buildings? On the same token, on the the Mm. same time... There is a housing shortage. So many people have proposed, and I've heard oh. this before, why don't Connect, we take yeah, yeah, exactly. Why don't we take the, the skyscrapers that, that you know don't have a lot of you know have a lot of vacancies right now, and why don't we turn them into apartments? Not so easy, and there's a really interesting story today that the inquirer did about all of the various hurdles you have to clear. But one of the big ones is that these buildings are not designed for living. And so mm-hmm. to convert them, you either A have to put in a lot of capital and time which is not super attractive for developers, um, or you have to create a living space that you probably don't want to live in. Um, and so it, it's interesting. I'm just very curious what will happen with our physical downtown spaces yeah. in the next five to 10 years. And this is one of the, the areas I'm really watching closely. What will happen to the old office buildings?
2: Yeah, and it's funny. I used to live in a old broom factory. When I moved. What? Like, yeah, I used to, I lived in a loft and it was, it yeah. was a, Room factory and it was converted to loft. And so, you know, when you think about converting office buildings, you got to think about bathrooms. Yeah. um, Because every... You know, apartment needs a bathroom they also want windows and so you know nobody wants to be like in a closet right so that costs money and you have to design it in a special way and so it could cost almost as much as building something new or converting it so i did not know that that was very
0: interesting i I, uh, I like that you brought up the example of factories factories into lofts because that is something that was like a prior generation of this Mm -hmm, problem right mm -hmm. factories Deindustrialization. What do you do mm-hmm. with these spaces? Some got knocked down. Some got converted into housing. And it was a cool spot, too. And it was a cool Yeah, spot. yeah cool. <laughs> the, the broom factory, folks. The broom look it up. broom factory, yeah. Um, but, so... I'll be interested if there will be success stories along those lines or something Mm. else will happen with these with these big office buildings. But if you think about it, so much of our physical space, especially in Center City and even more so really in in Manhattan and and cities like Boston, is dedicated to the idea that people who do office work do it in person. Yeah. And that there's going to have to be some sort of revolution there. You would think. You would think. And so now I think is the perfect time to.
2: Transition to our newsmaker. A revolution
0: in the world of education. Absolutely. Lawmakers
2: had until the end of the week to file an appeal to the landmark ruling that called Pennsylvania's school funding unconstitutional. But guess what? They didn't file anything. We're joined by Amanda Fitzpatrick, WHYY's city education reporter, to talk about this non-event.
1: Amanda, welcome to Studio 2. Thank you. You know, this is a big deal uh, for education. A lot of people are really excited about what this means for the future and even future generations. They had until midnight, July 21st. To appeal the decision, which would have meant what, that if they appealed it, that they would stop the funding, it would be a lot of litigation. But because they did not appeal the decision, that means that, well, now there can be some money that are thrown towards these schools that need it so they can prove these schools. And that's the biggest, uh, I think, exciting part of this factor is that that happened. Amanda, backtrack a little bit for us. Uh, Give us the history of this case and how we got here. I'm sure, you know, it happened about nine years ago. Um, It started back in 2014. And it's been one of those things where it was a four-month trial, and the judge decided in the case that – it was in fact school funding system was violating the state constitution to provide adequate schools and to approve schools in low wealth areas. And that was the problem. You know, we've talked about schools that have asbestos and schools without air conditioning units. We talked about curriculum that was needed for uh, English as a second language and even pre-K. And now, um, thanks to this ruling, which says that schools were not providing adequate education for all students across the state fairly, um, now that means that they're going to be able to get the funding they need to provide those programs. And once they can do that, The hope is that they'll be able to do it quickly, but we don't know when or even how much. And I think that's where the net what's next happens.
2: Yeah. And I think about this. I mean, did did we have any idea
1: why they decided not to to appeal? That's a good question. Um, If you look at some of the statements that have been released by some of the legislative leaders, uh, in particular, House Minority Leader Brian Cutler, he talks about endless litigation. If they were to continue to fight against what the judge decided, which was the ruling that it is unconstitutional, um, how they were handling the funding for these schools, it would be a nonstop back and forth up to the Supreme Court. And that would, you know, say that they still believe that is the case. Now, some of the, uh, the lawyers that worked towards uh, the, the lawsuit initially that sued, they are excited because what they're saying is by them not appealing, that means that they understand that those schools weren't getting what they need. So if you look at some of the back and forth that's gone on at this point, they're all focused on the future. Both sides are saying, let's agree how we can move forward and do what's best for the kids. So, so what is next? I mean, what are, what are
0: the potential paths before us here?
1: That is what we are looking at now. Um, The question asked every side was, what's next? How much money? How are they going to figure out how much money is needed? What we're being told is they are going to start looking at the different schools. Each school has different needs. You may have a school that needs help with English as a second language. You may have a school that needs help with the facilities or the building itself. So they're going to try to determine what the schools need. Once they determine that, then they can come up with a budget. They have a Basic education funding commission that's going to work to determine what is needed and where, and that's a big question: is it billions of dollars? Is it multi millions? Every school is going to have to put in to those uh, discussions what they need to determine what is needed. Could there be a future battle? I mean, now that this door to litigation is closed, what's the next fight? Um, Some have said, you know, the law center, some groups are saying that, you know, if we don't get the money that is needed and within a timely manner, they may have to take it back to the courts to expedite that. But the biggest thing here is the biggest hurdle of whether or not there was a termination. uh, This lawsuit is now over. There's a victory. Um, Funding we know will be provided. It's just how much and when. Um, And with the session coming up in February, a lot of people are hoping that there will be discussions before then to help determine what is needed. So the plaintiffs, if they don't like the remedy, could sue again or or sort of
0: trigger more litigation.
1: Right. Um, And right now what they're saying is they're trying to move forward in this moment, I think, and they're saying that they want to understand what the schools need and they want to provide to the lawmakers, because if you don't have an exact monetary number, how can you say we're going to give you this amount of money to do this when they don't know what is needed? So I think it's going to be important and incumbent upon both sides to work together to figure out exactly how much money and then how they can get it done. Um, One of the lawmakers I spoke to, they said that the biggest hurdle is now over. um, And now is a time to move forward in action. But they're not talking about filing more lawsuits just yet. They're hoping that they can at least get this established first and get some lead way there.
2: Yeah, any ideas? Um, We have only about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Any ideas on how this kind of ties to the budget impasse? Because there's still that battle over the
1: budget in Harrisburg. Right. Um, That is something that they're also looking at. You know, when I talked to um, Jordan Harris, State Representative Jordan Harris, and I asked him, I said, you know, what happens if it takes too long or if the money isn't there or isn't decided? Um, And he spoke a little bit, I'll tell you, he said the byproduct of the lawsuit, he quote says, is now that we have a ruling, we have a once in a generation in mind to properly address what education should look like in the Commonwealth and what tools should be in our toolbox. The biggest picture here is, figuring out how much i think that's and then from there seeing how they can get that money to the schools
0: thank you so much amanda that's amanda fitzpatrick city education reporter for WHYY. coming up next Mm sociolinguist valerie friedland is standing by to make the case for keeping the ums likes and literallys in our speech that's right around the bend on studio two Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back, everybody, to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman and I'm like Cherry Greg.
2: <laughs> language and grammar are one of those issues. People are really, really passionate about it. I mean, really passionate as radio hosts. We often hear from listeners correcting our grammar or the pronunciation of a word. I get it. Even, you know, everybody has pet peeves when it comes to language. Even
0: I do. I never get corrected. My grammar's perfect. What are you talking about, Cherry?
3: Really? I
2: I don't believe you. (laughs) Nope.
0: Uh, It is fascinating how much people care. It's not Mm -hmm. just uh, listeners. It's not just our mothers. Uh, Our next guest, however, makes a case for bad grammar, including defending the use of filler words like, like, and um, and the overuse or perhaps misuse of the word literally, and how some people talk with a vocal fry. University of Nevada linguist Valerie Friedland joins us now on the line to talk about how language evolves and about her new book, Like, Literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Valerie, welcome to Studio Two.
4: Thank you. I'm excited to talk with you
2: today. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have pet peeves when it comes to vocal fillers like like or um or you know? Or are you the grammar police in your friend group? (laughs) Email us your questions or comments
0: at studio2 at whyy.org. All right, Valerie, you really grabbed me in this book around page 2829 when you talked about Icelandic. And I'm going to put I'm going to set this up a little bit because for me to really buy into the argument of, of your book, I needed to understand that language modification adaptation was not just inevitable, but actually good and necessary. And you talk about Icelandic as a language that has maybe been over-policed and has thus perhaps not quite kept up with the times. Can you tell us a little bit about Icelandic and how it stands out compared to English? Well, sure.
4: Both Icelandic and English are Germanic languages. They're from different branches, but they basically evolve from the same proto-language called Common German or Proto-German that existed several thousand years ago prior to English being a thing. But English was a colloquial language. So when it came about by the Anglo-Saxons in the 7th century, it was not really a language of education. It wasn't a language of literature. It wasn't a language of the government. It was simply the language people talked about on the horse horse paths and to each other, you know, when they were hanging out at the dinner table drinking mead. But Latin was the language of education. And later, French became the language of education. So language emerges with changes when people aren't spending so much time trying to hold those changes back. So English changed drastically over Mm -hmm. the time because no one was policing it. Icelandic, on the other hand, has long had... Uh, sort of institutional regulation over changes, just like the French. And whenever you do that, you have this top down pressure on language not to change because you want to keep it more, you know, allegedly pure um, or perfect in terms of how it used to be, then it won't change as much. It won't follow natural inherent changes that happen over time with all languages. And that's what happened between English and Icelandic, which is why
0: Icelandic has a bunch of endings today. And English has only basically plural S. And th- does that limit Icelandic in terms of what we can express through it or what it describes? Like, does it actually hold the language back in a in a utilitarian sense?
4: You know, I think that's a really interesting question, and it would depend on what angle you're going for. It, it doesn't hold anybody back to be expressive, because even though Icelandic hasn't changed as much as English in terms of changing its basic structure, English is a drastically different language than Old English. It has changed in other ways. It still keeps up with the times because people need to express and communicate through it. And language always evolves in ways that allows people to do that. What I think it hasn't done is allowed sort of ground up changes the same way English has. So it may not be in the same sense as English, a language of the people, if that makes sense. Mm. So I don't think you can say it's good or bad. It's just different.
2: Just different. Interesting. Yeah. And I want to just sort of talk about set a, a, a basic foundation here, because when we hear language, the words that people use, the choice of words, accents, pronunciation, what do people take from just listening to someone speak uh, as far as making decisions about who that person is.
4: There is a huge amount that people both take away and judge people on and which is unfortunate and fortunate. A lot of times, sometimes it bonds us. So when we use colloquial language, language of familiarity and friendship, it actually brings us closer together. And we find that the more people are oriented towards each other or want to succeed in a conversation, the more they take on traits that the other one is using in that conversation and it's a process we call accommodation. So it really means that you're getting along when you start to shift towards this more familiar language use. But a lot of times also when someone sounds different than us, we use that to judge them and sometimes even hinder them. Um, in fact, I just wrote an article on accent bias that shows that when people have foreign accents or even uh, dialect variants that are disliked or dispreferred, it can really affect their job and professional opportunities and even make us decide whether we want to hang out with them or not. So there's a lot we take away from just the way people pronounce things. And I think, of course, in Philly, you hear a lot about your Mm -hmm. Philly accent. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, everybody can tell where you're from. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it might not be so great, depending on what your aspirational goals are in that conversational exchange.
2: Yeah. And you've spoken about language discrimination um, a little bit and how people perceive others. Can you talk about the some of the biases we inject into a situation based on even whether or not somebody uses the G like pronounces the G when you're saying in, in the I and G words? And there's different little, I guess, indicators of what class somebody is, where they're from and all those things.
4: Absolutely. I mean, we're really judgy. <laughs> it's what it boils down to. And I think people don't realize these very subtle cues that we take from somebody's conversations. So when you say, I'm walking or I'm talking instead of I'm walking and I'm talking, it may not seem like a big deal. But there was a really interesting study done on perception by Bill LeBove, who is a, a famous linguist actually at UPenn and his team at several years ago, where they found that when someone listened to a pre recorded passage and they were assessing, that person on job professional skills and they said in even one time rather than in they got downgraded on their uh, hireability and they're competent. So Mm. clearly, even though we don't realize we judge people on those really subtle things, we do. And a lot of times it's because in is associated not only with informal speech, but by and large, also with working class speech or lower class speech. And also with men, when we do studies, it always patterns in that way that they use it at a higher frequency. And those really subtle patterns can influence the way we think about who those people are in the larger world and what they're capable of, which of course has nothing to do with the reality of what they're capable of, but just our stereotypes about them
0: and with that i want to bring in a clip from the 1992 film my cousin Vinny. you reference this scene in the book joe pesci as Vinny is an attorney from new york as you'll soon hear questioning a witness about the two young defendants in a murder case
3: is it possible to two youths uh, uh, to what uh, what was that word uh what word to what what
1: did you say utes? Yeah, two youths. What is a youth?
0: Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. (laughs) All right. So uh, (laughs) why did you – what interested you about that movie um, in terms of the thesis of your book? And I also just wanted to get a little bit more into the interplay between um, sort of linguistic adaptations that come from folks uh, in marginalized groups, lower class groups. Because it seems like, as as you mentioned, sometimes – there's a selection against those, but sometimes there are cases where people select for those vocal adaptations because they, they, see, they feel like it gives them some, some credibility. Um, so first of all, I'll talk about the scene, but then also maybe talk a little bit more broadly about um, those types of vocal adaptations.
4: Sure. Well, first of all, that movie is just a classic. So if you haven't seen it, (laughs) I (laughs) I mean, how can you not include my cousin Finney in a discussion about language? But what I loved about that movie is how it takes two dialects that are actually not well loved in American imagination. That's the New York accent, the sort of working class, uh, or even Italian New York accent, and then the Southern accent. And then it sort of juxtaposes them in this really funny way where you're having these two people try to communicate and with They're all their attitudes and stereotypes about each other coming into play. And what I loved about that scene is it's the TH sound that they're arguing over. And if we look at language change and what's most frequent and common and natural in language, TH is a really weird sound. Very few languages have it. Um, languages that do have it are trying to get rid of it constantly. And this is a very typical change we see, see in languages like English, where uh, TH sounds go to become something else, particularly among speakers that don't um, carefully pronounced th just to have that sort of um, more aristocratic sound. So, for example, you can hear in Scotland something, something instead of something or teeth instead of teeth and also of course the new york accent the utes, the utes, or you hear (laughs) african-american english you could hear brava brava so what we see is it's something about th and if we look at child language acquisition th is a sound that is late to be acquired rare in world languages and often causes problems in articulation all of that suggests it's not actually a very common sound in languages, or natural. And it is the tendency of languages to get rid of things that are not efficient, and that's not a very efficient sound. So that there were two reasons I picked that clip: one, because it's a great example of this juxtaposition of two dialects, but two, because it's also a great example of a very natural sound change occurring and then taking on some social meaning, which it does in that
2: movie. And but you, to your question, sorry, go ahead. No, uh, complete your thought.
4: Well, I was just going to answer the second part of your question about how sometimes we judge people on these ethnic or class-based varieties, but at the same time we adopt them. And if you look at language changes over time, I think what would surprise most people is a lot of the things that we consider standard today were actually at one point in time class-based features from the low class mm. and marginalized communities. So they actually introduce changes at a much higher rate than those in higher classes or in dominant groups because they don't control for natural occurring
0: changes quite as much. Mm. So we judge them, but then we also adapt. That's such a, such an odd relationship.
4: It's a very odd thing, and I think it goes against what most people think. But yeah. a great example of this is, um, you know, in New England, the aunt pronunciation of ant or rather over rather, which to most Americans sounds very hoity-toity and upper class. But if you look back in the literature from the 17th century, people called that vulgar and crass and just a low class change because the way that Americans say it, ant and rather, was actually the normal way to say it prior to the 17th century. And it was considered a really uh, horrible new thing coming into the language. But then it got picked up in the cool circles of the royal court and it became the best thing to say, right? Mm. Something that we think is better. So it's this really funny relationship between disdain for those speakers, but also admiration for what they say.
2: Yeah. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Valerie Friedland, a sociolinguist who is the author of the book, Like Literally Dude, arguing for the good in bad English. And I got to, I wanted to ask you a question about language and gender. I mean, I think about my uh, grandmother who was constantly correcting my grammar and my pronunciation. She used to say, I don't want you to sound like a hooligan or a hussy, right? Mm. Uh, She used (laughs) those words, her words about my language. And I want you to sort of talk a little bit about the way language is perceived differently based on whether a man says a phrase versus a woman says the phrase, and then um, women's role in the evolution um, of language.
4: Absolutely. First of all, I love your grandmother already. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like a hussy.
0: it yeah, sounds like okay, she had she a real it.
2: point of view. Pronounced there. it like full pronunciation. <laughs>
4: go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really fascinating. I just gave a talk a, a lecture on the subject of language and gender yesterday, because it's there's so much to say. And in fact, it was really hard to contain it all in an hour. So I'll try to be brief. But the, the basic thing is women and men come from a long history of being valued for different things. And men were valued in public spaces and professional spaces and legal contexts, and education. And women were really not valued in any of those. In fact, we find Aristotle praise, the silent woman and saying that the nature of man of men is to be in command, but that is not the nature of women. And then we see in the Middle Ages, women that spoke out in spinning circles or at the market were actually accused of crimes of sins of the tongue for being too talkative and spreading gossip and vile slander. And they were fitted with this contraption that went over their face like a Hannibal Lecter mask, and it depressed their tongue so they couldn't talk. Oh and then in the 18th and 19th century, etiquette books basically tell women to be quiet and silent and don't talk out of turn and don't talk when men are talking. And then we get to this moment today where women are in these professional circles. We're loud now in public spaces, but that doesn't mean that the attitudes towards our voices being there is actually that improved. And this is where you see these essentialist ideas about that's not very ladylike now, is it? And boys will be boys where we see this idea that there's different behavior by gender. That then impacts how we interpret the types of things men and women say. So that trope about the really talkative women, and I bet almost everybody listening thinks women talk more than men. But if you look at the science, that is absolutely not true. In a critical review of 63 studies that looked at who talked more, men or women, in 61 of those it was not the women that were talking Mm. more. It was either men in 24 of the studies talked more, and in the remainder, there was no consistent difference. So it is really a misunderstanding of women's voices and where they belong that makes us feel like when a woman talks, she talks too much. And this is particularly true in professional settings, where anytime women talk, they are in this dangerous position of getting this backlash for coming across as bossy or pushy because they're talking as much as men are talking. So there's just a stereotypical assumption that we bring to hearing men and women talk that changes the way that we interpret the same behavior from a man
2: than from a woman. And I want to do a quick follow up because I want to talk about vocal fry, something I rarely have, but have been accused of. And for folks who don't know what it is, we're going to play a quick clip so you can hear it.
0: Really, really the best four days of my life. Yeah, yeah, you had fun? Yeah, we really had the best time ever.
2: Yeah, and I want to wrap in this comment from um, uh, Jennifer, who is demanding that we convince her that vocal fry is anything more than a learned affectation. First of all, can you try to describe what vocal fry is? And it seems to me that, and, and, and there have been articles written about this, that women are accused of this a lot more than men.
4: Absolutely. And they certainly are, Um, although that doesn't really hold up to when we look at the history of vocal fry, where it comes Mm -hmm. from. But vocal fry is basically what linguists call a phonation style. Which means that it's made at the larynx with the vocal folds and all the only difference between that and regular voice is simply that the vocal folds are a little more lax and heavy and the air pressure through them is a little slower and lower. And so they sort of um, vibrate with a little more irregular of a pattern than in our normal speaking voice, which comes across as this sort of scratchy, deep staccato quality that you were just playing where it's kind of like this. And if it's natural to you, it just your voice just decides into that lower pitch range. Now, this hits on something that I think you asked about just a, a question ago about the role of women in innovations. And what we find historically is it's not just the working class that innovates in language more than the dominant class or the higher classes, it's also women. By and large, women are the innovators and creative ones in language. This has been true since the early modern period and the records we have from letters and diaries back then, and it's true today. And Vocal Fry is an example of an innovation that mm. serves a metalinguistic purpose for women and that is to say that hey i'm i'm urban i'm professional i'm relaxed i'm chill and that's sort of the aura that it comes uh, that gives it gives especially with younger people but it's not only women that do it in fact if you look at the studies of vocal fry over the last century, it's actually men who used to vocal fry more than women and still do in British speech. So women are innovating in how it's used, but not in the feature itself.
0: And it's not an affectation to to address Jennifer's (laughs) question. She demanded that we answer this. Um, (laughs) It's not, not, I guess, I think what she was getting at is that it's not like just put on for a purpose people do do it naturally I think that was it becomes
4: part of a natural conversational style now the thing about language is as we innovate and we change and we shift towards things it's generally unconscious so it's this this move towards something that's appealing to us because it embodies some um, emotional resonance or some quality that we we identify with and we start to adopt it in our own speech usually in our adolescence when we're quite young because that's when we're most malleable in our language but it's not conscious. We rarely make moves towards low level features like that consciously. Now we do make moves towards vocabulary consciously. So if I start saying riz, I've probably picked that up. But if I start using vocal fry, I mean, it's a a style. So in that sense, you could call an affectation because it's part of your personal linguistic style, but everybody has a style and they subconsciously choose aspects of that style without being aware of it at any level that you would say oh i'm going to put on vocal fry right now it's more that probably people that were important to them and influential on them in adolescence use vocal fry and so they as a sense of community as a sense of belonging as whatever that quality that was embodied by that among that group adopted it in their own speech but not in a conscious way
0: can i ask about things that annoy people yeah bonnie from wilmington writes to us and says the use of words you know constantly in a sentence stand out to them. You mention um, you talk about um and uh in this book. And you make the argument that these these little fillers serve a purpose. I'm curious, A, what purpose they serve, but also B, why you think they stand out to people and annoy some people
4: there's so many things that annoy people that if you (laughs) get rid of some of them, the other ones pop up. (laughs) So it's really hard to address the concerns of everybody in terms of what annoys them, because it's amazing how many things annoy people. But there are certain ones that reoccur. And I would say, you know, um, and like are probably the top three of things I hear about. And I think people notice them because once it's sort of this recency illusion, once you are aware of something, it feels like it's everywhere all the time. And for example, when we talk about like in my class, what we find is as soon as we mention that word, we laugh every time someone says it after that, because it's so salient in our mind. So Mm -hmm. if it's something that annoys you, you just tend to notice it more. But You know, like, and um are all forms of fillers. Now, um is actually a little different cognitively than like and you know, because those are discourse markers and um is a filled pause. And we find there are cognitive differences between them, but they all serve a purpose. And I'm not just claiming that there's actually a lot of empirical research and psycholinguistic research that proves that they do. The question is whether it's a purpose everybody likes. And um, I'm not going to argue as I use an um just for for you (laughs) to simplify it there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to argue that people that use them excessively are great (laughs) speakers, but I will argue that using them appropriately, where they serve a, a function meti- linguistically, actually does help speech and it does help conversational flow. And with um and uh, it actually helps with cognitive processing. Can you explain sure, that? How does it
0: help? Because I think that's the part people are missing. Whether or not they're annoyed by it, I don't think they understand that it actually can help us communicate.
4: It can. And, and it's sort of one of those things that's unconscious, so we don't realize it's helping us. But there's a huge body of psycholinguistic research on um and uh to see what they do. And um, speakers use them because they're, they're useful for speech planning. They give us a, a cognitive second to get everything going in our brains, to come up with difficult words, to come up with less common words, to create big st- sentence structures. But when we do that, what we're actually signaling to a listener is that um, something is coming up that requires more cognitive processing, that it's going to be new information or difficult information. So it essentially prepares a listener to get their brain ready. So what we find is when someone uses an um or a uh before a word, that increases the speed at which a listener is able to find that word in their own mental dictionary and also helps them remember it better later. So there are actual provable effects of someone using um and uh that help you with memory and recall and word recognition. So it is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. I think where people get upset is in places where we expect people to be well-practiced and maybe give a presentation that they've rehearsed it signals to them that they're not doing speech planning because they hadn't practiced. And that's where it really bothers us, I think, and maybe rightly so in those contexts.
2: Yeah. And we only have about a minute or so left, but I had to I want to ask you quickly about grammar and specifically the use of pronouns. We've consciously changed how we the grammatical use of the word they and them. And I want you to talk about efforts that we've used in language where we as a culture have sort of shifted that. And you only have like 30 or 40 seconds to answer that question. But it was intentional and we all have made this agreement.
4: Yes, we all. It's sort of a community collective agreement as we go through social and cultural change that parts of language like pronouns change with that. And that this is not the first time. If you use you and ye today instead of thou and thee, you have shifted your pronouns along with massive cultural and social shifts. Because in the early modern period, with the greater democracy and egalitarianism that had been created by the um, increased work in London and increased immigration, we shifted towards pronouns that were sort of informal Mm -hmm. and colloquial to ones that were very formal and also recognized everybody's stature. And that's you and ye. There you go.
0: Well, a perfect place to leave it. (laughs) Valerie Freeland, professor of linguistics, author of Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And you're listening to Studio Two. I am Avi wolfman And
2: I am Cherry (laughs) Gregg.
0: Cherry. (laughs) Have you seen, uh, and you would have seen it if you read BillyPenn.com, by the way, have you seen this beautifully illustrated map of brick-and-mortar bookstores in Philadelphia that you can get at branches of the Free Library of Philadelphia for free.
2: Absolutely, because I do read (laughs) BillyPen.com, Avi. Good on you. But for our next segment, this map needs to be bigger than Philadelphia because we are talking to a local bookstore owner who recently opened a new store overseas. Janine Cook is the owner of Ida's Bookshop in Collingswood and Harriet's Bookshop here in Philadelphia. But she joins us now From Paris, France, where she just opened Josephine's Bookshop, a store that highlights the accomplishments of Black women. And at this one in particular, the life of Josephine Baker. Janine, welcome to Studio Two from Paris.
3: Hi, you all. Thank you for having me. Or should I say uh, bonjour? (laughs) Don't test
2: our (laughs) French, it's not going to go well. And so we're excited to have you. You recently opened up Josephine Books, Josephine's Bookshop. What inspired you to do and to take on this project?
3: Uh, well, like Harriet's and like Ida's, uh, Josephine is a larger-than-life figure who uh, her life seems to just inspire. Her life seems to give us an opportunity to think bigger about what's possible. For ourselves and the world, and so each of these women leads me on this journey, uh, and Josephine has led me here to Paris. Yeah,
0: what about Josephine? What 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 about her life really spoke to you?
3: Yeah, well, specifically with Josephine, there are several things. Right, I think one is she just has an indomitable spirit. Um, this is someone who leaves home at thirteen years old and starts off on the road. Um, and ends up being uh, eventually put into the pantheon uh, for her amazing accomplishments, whether that be the work that she did as a spy uh, during World War II, or the like. The every venue in she spent on almost every continent, uh, sharing her uh, story and her performance, and really bringing joy to people's lives. And
2: Josephine Baker has a Philadelphia connection as well.
3: Absolutely. Well, many people don't know this, but she became Josephine Baker in Philadelphia. She married Billy Baker uh, right in uh, South Philadelphia. And before that, you know, that's where she got the name and continued to use it for her entire career. Yeah.
0: A pop-up in Paris sounds incredibly Mm -hmm. daunting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> why, I mean, why did you take this challenge on? Because it does seem like a challenge.
3: Well, you know, I think that it's an important endeavor in that Philly and Paris have a lot of parallels. People don't know maybe that Benjamin Franklin, a lot of his inspiration for the way that Philadelphia looks uh, came from Paris. He even was bringing um, architects over from Paris and, because he had such a deep love and believed that the two cities should forever be connected uh, as sisters. And so there are a lot of ways in which Paris, I think, inspires me, but also can inspire other Philadelphians. I've met so many Philadelphians while I was, I've been here. Um, I've even had some Philadelphians come visit, uh, all fly-in, just to see Josephine's. Uh, and so the love and relationship is definitely there.
2: Yeah. Janine, I've been to Harriet's and Fishtown multiple times. And I know a bookshop when you do it is not just a bookshop. (laughs) It's more like an art exhibition with books as accessories. I want you to Mm. describe Josephine's bookshop in Paris, because I can only imagine that it has to be more than just like some bookshelves with some books on it.
3: Oh, no, it's definitely an experience, um, as they all are. Uh, it's designed for you to feel as though you are with Josephine Baker. So when you walk in, you're in a bedroom, uh, and it's an over-the-top, what we call bar um, because there's literally a bar in the bedroom and a piano in the bedroom. Um, and the space, there are books hiding in the armoire, there are books hiding in drawers. Um, and the idea is that when you come into the bookshop, that you're having a fully immersive experience, that you're fully present, that you're thinking um, about how you want to engage with books differently. People always ask, like, Janine, will books survive into the future? And they definitely will. One of the things that is happening at Josephine's tomorrow is a conversation that we're hosting about AI and the future of books. And so the space is not just though it is visually stunning, I must say. Um, (laughs) The walls are, you know, the walls are covered in denim. Denim is a a, um, thread throughout. Um, But it's also a space for dialogue, for conversation, for us to have these, to make decisions about what we want to see happen with books, as opposed to just kind of waiting by the wayside and saying, oh, you know, woe is me. Uh, And so the space also has, like, Denise King, who's a Philadelphian, who lives in paris half half the year she's curated jazz musicians throughout the entire installation so at any point you'll come and you'll meet a jazz musician um, a bassist or a pianist etc uh, so that there are several events happening with with her um, and then we also have uh, sylvia serbin who's a historian here in france who's written the the only book about african queens uh and it's only in french and so we've been working really hard with her to try to find a translator to get it put into English because Sylvia went into all the different parts of Africa and interviewed oral storytellers. Um, and before that, people told her that these women were myths, that they never existed wow. until she did her research. And so the bookshop is doing, of course, it's, you know, we're selling books and we're making sure that people have knowledge of Josephine. Um, but the bookshop also is designed to bring people together to challenge our society, yeah. to challenge ourselves. Uh, and to and to push the things forward
0: Richard Wright, James Baldwin, obviously Josephine Baker uh, many great uh, black artists and intellectuals have stayed in Paris for some period of time. How do you describe Paris's place within the world of black arts and culture?
3: yeah it's pivotal it's absolutely pivotal uh, many people come here and they come because they get to as Baldwin talks about take off kind of the the heavy weight of race um in certain ways and in other ways you pick up some other weights I would say Mm. um and then I think that the other thing about Paris there's a there's a artistic heartbeat here where the artist is revered and 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 really cared for in a way that some societies haven't uh, found a way to do just yet uh, we were able to have a conversation with Governor Shapiro uh, about uh, the way that Paris really wow. celebrates its small business owners, um, especially its booksellers and the ways in which you know France has created laws to really support the cultural cultural heritage of being a bookseller um, and competing in a in a marketplace that's um, in some ways very unbalanced. And so yeah, we're we're doing yeah. all types of I think that, Paris and France in general has been the home of intellectuals, the home of writers, the home of artists, um, specifically providing a safe space for black artists. Uh, And it it said that, you know, we can come here and be safe and create our work. And got
2: to ask you, as we get ready to wrap up, if there is a book that you think that you're selling there that you think is a must read about Josephine Baker, what is that?
3: Oh my goodness! So I think that the newest book that just came out is called Josephine the Spy, and it will give people an understanding of her work during World War II. And I think people will really appreciate a woman who was willing to like hide notes in her music so that she, you know, she would pre- go perform but also be passing along secret messages. Um, would allow them to put things into her dresses and into her costumes so that, the, that people could be saved. She was helping all types of people get out of Nazi Germany. Uh, and so that's, that's the book I would suggest mm. for sure, Josephine the Spy.
0: That sounds fascinating. Fascinating. Wow. Uh, that's Janine Cook. Thanks so much for joining us on absolutely. Studio 2. thank you all.
3: Uh, appreciate you inviting us
0: on. Absolutely. Janine Cook is the owner of Ida's Bookshop in Collingswood, Harriet's Bookshop in Philadelphia, and if you happen to be in, in Paris, Paris France, <laughs> Josephine's Bookshop. Our producers are Debbie Builder. Paige Murray Bessler and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. For more of our show, head to WHYY.org slash studio two or download us wherever you get your podcasts. From Studio Two, WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Avi Wolfman And I am Cherry Gregg. We're
2: closing the hour with Josephine Baker in 1971, performing I Could Have Danced All Night.
1: Begin to dance with me. I
2: could have danced.